Today, our text is 1 John chapter 2, starting verse 28 and going through 3, verse 3. And of course, we're continuing the thought. And I want us to think today, as we look at this text, of three exhortations or commands. I'll call them exhortations because it sounds better than a command, though John is, John is commanding us. And the first is to abide. And that's familiar to us because we thought about that last week. And we'll see just how what he what he challenges us with here uh, with regards to that today. The second one is behold. And then the third one, we're going to have to uh, it's unwritten. So we're going to have to add our own. And I'm not trying to add to scripture, but we're taking John's words and we're putting a we're putting uh, an exhortative word there with it. And that is perhaps reflect. Reflect contemplate, meditate on this, which is similar to behold, but, but a little bit different because he's going to be telling us and challenging us to reflect on and meditate on that which is coming. So let's go ahead and look at the text. Let me read the text for us this morning. First uh, John 2, starting in verse 28 and going through 3, 3. And now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. <laughs> Beloved, we are now, we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So three exhortations here this morning as we think about uh, this text. Let's start with the first, and in so doing, link ourselves back to what we looked at last week. Verse 28, and now little children, abide in him. We talked about this last week, abiding, making our home in Christ and in the truth and in the light. Abide in him. And John here gives us a, not a reason, because we abide in him because it's truth. We abide in him because he's the light. We abide in him because he's worthy. But here's the implications of our abiding in him. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Here is one of the great truths that we proclaim as the people of God, and we say it every week in our Apostles' Creed. That Christ will come in glory to judge both the living and the dead. I, I've shared this with you before, but that time when, when, you know, there was talk, it was Harold Camping was saying that, uh, you know, Christ was going to come again. And, and he had the date and the time somewhere in May. And I can't remember when. But there was that moment, that very distinct moment. I know right where Christina and I were because we were driving to New Pulse. And I can see where we were. And it was an amazing cloudy day uh, with like, you know, one of those days in May were big billowing clouds, big billowing thunderclouds and, and uh, the light kind of pouring through the clouds. And, 
And it was, it was like a day that Jesus could come back again. You know, one of those, one of those days where like the clouds, you could just see them just ripping open and Christ coming in. And I remember thinking it's probably not going to happen today. Um, at the time when Harold Camping said it was, but there was just this moment where I'm driving on my way to New Paulson and I'm seeing these amazing clouds and the sun kind of radiating through it. And I did think to myself, it's probably not going to be today, but it is going to be someday. And someday there's going to be a guy and his wife driving to New Pulse and the heavens are going to rip open and Christ is going to appear. And that was a, it was a very surreal moment um, because it made me, it reminded me, it called me back to the fact that this stuff we believe is not just, you know, a pie in the sky, that the stuff we believe is not just abstract, that the things we believe are not mythical in that, in that sense of them being not true. And this, this is something we can slip into as Christians because it's right. Uh, Jesus is, is talking about, oh, on that day, it'll be like, like the days of Noah. People are buying and selling, going about their business. You know, we, we slide into this reality that things are today the way they will always be. And then we hold these Christian beliefs out here somewhere. We, we hold these beliefs about, about God and about the faith and salvation and Christ coming and heaven and glory. And, and these things are just these abstract beliefs that we hold. But you know what? I got to wake up tomorrow and go back to work. And I got to sit in traffic and I got to deal with taxes and I got to deal with friends and problems and sickness and COVID. You know, it's like I, I, life goes on. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day in which the heavens are going to rip open and Christ will return. And on that day, John is saying, you do not want to be ashamed. You do not want to be ashamed. So what? So abide in Christ. Abide in him. Again, whatever you've got on your agenda for today, whatever important things there are to deal with tomorrow, whatever the trials and circumstances and busynesses of tomorrow are for you, Make sure this one thing is settled, that you are abiding in Christ. If you are abiding in Christ, then brothers and sisters, here's the encouragement to you. You may have confidence. Confidence. That on that day, you will not be ashamed. And that confidence can be and should be the most liberating thing in the world. It's this that really, in, in some ways, led to what we call today the Protestant work ethic. Well, I shouldn't say today. You almost never hear that phrase anymore. But it used to be called the Protestant work ethic. Why the Protestant work ethic? Because Martin Luther, you know, had this burden on his back of guilt and shame of his sin. He knew his sin. And Luther, if you could go back and look at his life pre-conversion, pre-coming to the, the awareness of sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, in terms of his justification, that is that we're justified. We are made right before God because of Christ alone, which we receive by faith alone, which is a gift of grace alone. That before Luther came to that recognition, he knew his sin very intimately. He was overwhelmed by it. 
And while he was so concerned about salvation and salvation, how do I know I'm right with God? How am I going to be acceptable to God? What Luther would later look back on and say is that really it was a self-absorption, right? I'm worried about my salvation. How am I going to be made right? How am I not going to undergo God's judgment? You know, me, me, me. What do I have to do? But when Luther discovered the goodness of the gospel of sola gratia, that is by grace alone and Christ alone, Luther himself testifies that it was as if a, a, a burden rolled off his back and he entered into the gates of paradise itself. And the Catholic Church said to him, well, now, Luther, if you go around preaching this stuff, people will never obey. They're never going to obey if you tell them everything that's required of them is already done. They're not going to obey. Why would they obey? Why would we do it if we knew that everything God expected of us was already done? But Luther just thought that was ridiculous. Because for him now, for the first time, he could truly obey, not because of what he gets from it. But simply because of God, he, that is, he was able to forget himself. The biggest worry of my life, of my eternal soul, is removed. I am now free to serve God, to love my neighbor, to do what God has given me to do with all my might. Maybe it's making shoes, maybe it's baking bread, maybe it's milking cows, maybe it's ruling over nations. But now I'm able to give it my attention and do it to the glory of the God who saved me without this fear and this worry of my eternal soul. That is to say, he was able to have confidence. And that led to what became known as the Protestant work ethic, right? A freedom that comes now to do what God has called us to do. I'm not earning anything. I'm not earning my salvation. It is free gift. My encouragement to you, my challenge to you is to abide in that truth. Because when you step out of that truth, you step out of the realm of confidence. There is nothing else to have confidence in other than Christ. And John challenges his little children, and now little children, abide in him. Don't you leave him. Don't step out of that house. Abide in him so that you may have confidence. Now, verse 29, we're gonna, I'm going to punt on this because it's going to bring us into our next text uh, next week. Not punt on it. I mean, we can read it and think about it, but that I'm not going to drill down on this because we're going to come to this next week because John makes statements like this. And we know that he is righteous and you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And we know that John in his letter has been giving these tests for how we can know that we're in him. You know, what do we declare? What do we say? And here, what do we do? Do we genuinely practice righteousness? And remember, righteousness is not simply a list of rules that we check off, right? Righteousness is obedience to God for God because of love for God, you know. That's what makes something righteous. 
without that, it's it's not, you know, we, we can do good things for wrong motives. It's not righteous. The people who love God seek to serve him and they offer him their work, not because it earns us anything, but because he's worthy. What else am I going to do? He's the one who saved me. He's the one who redeemed me. He's the one who made me. Everything I do is for him. I want to honor him. This was Luther's point to the church. Those who have been saved by grace want nothing more than to honor the God who saved them. And so John gives that test. And I don't want to skip over it. Look in your life. Are we pursuing righteousness? Are we doing righteousness? It's a sign of one who is born of God, that we love the things he loves, and we, we seek to obey what he calls us to obey, what he calls us to do. So there is a test for us, and I don't want to skip over that. So the first exhortation or command, abide. We've heard that again and again. Second command or exhortation, chapter 3, verse 1, behold. And I love that word. I love that the King, New King James uses the word behold. And not just see. I think the ESB says see. And that's fine. It, it, right, he said, well, Bill, it, it kind of means the same thing. I know. Maybe it's just the, the poetic side of me. I, I like the word behold. Because it's not just saying see. But it's telling you, look, take it in. At least that's how I read behold. Hold it with your eyes. Stare at it. Contemplate it. Meditate on this amazing truth. Well, okay, what are we to behold? It's interesting. It caught me as I was reading Revelation 1 as our word of exhortation today that at least twice, I don't know about three times, but twice in Revelation 1, we're told, behold, behold. John liked this word. Look, look, look and see, contemplate, meditate on. Verse 3, behold what? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. What a beautiful command. Look with your heart, look with your eyes, look with your mind, look with your soul and meditate on what? On the type of love God has given to you. Reflect on the love of God and be overwhelmed by the manner of love, the way in which he has loved you. Behold. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Are you amazed by that? That you and I get to bear the title children of God. I, I chose the Exodus 4 reading today for this reason because it's so dramatic. We know the story. Moses is called to go back to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And, and that's an amazing thing. That God would say, you are my people and I am your God. But even more than that, in Exodus chapter 4, he tells Moses, go. And I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's not going to let you go. And when he doesn't, you say to him, this is what God has said. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. And if not, I will take your son. That's a bizarre thing to say. Not just let my people go. That's amazing. Let my son go. He's my son. Israel, collectively, as a people, they are my son. They're like my prized possession, my firstborn 
son. That amaze you? John is telling you, look, behold. Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 3, behold, consider the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of God's love toward you. Paul looks at himself, he says, what am I? I'm, I'm, I'm lesser than the least of all the saints. I remember that. It was one of my first sermons I had to preach in seminary on Ephesians chapter 3. And I remember specifically because Paul makes up a word in that passage where the, the, the English translations say, I am less than the least of all the saints. In the Greek, it's like a cobbled word. He puts things together to say, I am the leasterist. There's the least and I'm leaster than that. In fact, I'm the leasterist. There is no word like this. But Paul does stuff like that. He's like, how do I communicate to you what I am? I am less than the least. And that's why Paul can be amazed at the manner of God's love toward him. And why he can tell us and say, I pray for you that your heart would recognize, that the eyes of your heart would be open, that you might reckon with what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of this love because it is unsearchable. It is unfathomable. This is why you have people like Luther and Paul because they got a glimpse of the manner of God's love because they got a glimpse of their own sin. They had reckoned with their sin so deeply that when they reflected upon the grace of God given to them, it blew them away. If you have a tepid appreciation for the love of God, I can almost guarantee you it is because you have a very weak understanding of your sin. And if you have a weak understanding of your sin, I can almost guarantee you it's because you have not reflected or perhaps met the holy God of the scriptures. The one that makes you fall on your face in his presence. We must encounter the holy God to reckon with our sin because if I don't meet God, then the only judge, the only ruler I have to measure my sin is you. And you're not a great measure for this. Because you have enough flaws of your own that when I measure myself against you, I can come away thinking, well, maybe I'm not so bad. And no offense, you can do the same when you look at me. Because we're mutually flawed, we measure ourselves against each other. and We always find these weak spots in each other that we don't have. And so we feel kind of good about ourselves. And that's a tremendous flaw. The only way we will ever come to a recognition of our sin is when we hold ourselves up to the brilliance of God's holiness, when we meet the face that's like the sun. Then we see every nook and cranny of our sin. And then there's nowhere to hide. There's no wiggle room for me to justify myself. And I'm floored by my own sin. But that is so essential because it's only there then that you can then come back and behold what manner of love the Father has given unto that he would call Paul the lesser than the least of all the saints. That he would call Paul a child, his son. That he would call you a sinner such as you are. A piece of dust, a rebellious piece of dust. That he would call you a son or a daughter of his. You will never appreciate that. I will never appreciate that. Until I have come to the recognition of my own sin. But John tells us to look. 
behold. I encourage you today to behold. Not just now in the words of this sermon, or as we read the text, but throughout the day to meditate upon it. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Now John rips through a couple implications of this. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. I mean, you can hear, if you if you think about his gospel, you can hear these words coming right out of Jesus' mouth, right? In John 15, the world hates you because it hates me. The world's rejecting you because they did not know me. If they had known me, they would have known, if they would have known my father, they would recognize me. And you can hear all this language from John. And so he's reminding his little children that because you are the children of God, the world will reject you. Because it has rejected God the Father, it will be like Pharaoh, hearts will be hardened, they will not let his son go, just as when the ultimate son of Christ came, they did not let him go, they crucified him. This is how the Pharaohs of the world deal with the children of God, be prepared for that, know the story that you're in. Little children, John is saying, to a church that is going to, in time, undergo suffering. Therefore, because you have this amazing love bestowed on you by which you are called the children of God, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. But now, beloved, now we are the children of God. Right now. Right now, we are the children of God. The gifts of our justification, the gifts of the righteousness of Christ, the gifts of our adoption, the gifts of our union with him are given to us now by his spirit. And frankly, it doesn't matter what anyone says. God has said it. Third exhortation, which is not in the text, but which we will take in a matter of reflecting sort of this forward-looking hope he now tells us to look for beloved. Now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And hence our revelation one reading today. He's coming back. And when he comes back, we will see him face to face. The one who we know now by faith, we will know then by sight. And when we look into his face, and this is, of course, very hard for us to imagine, but it's so wonderful and beautiful that when we look into his face and when we behold him, we shall be conformed to his image. We shall be made like him. Do you remember, we could have chosen so many other texts here. Do you remember in the Old Testament with Moses again, when, when Moses met with God? That is when he symbolically, metaphorically came face to face with God. Do you remember on the other side of it, what Moses looked like? You remember the people couldn't look at his face? He had to veil his face because his face was radiant like the glory of God. That is, he had met God and he had become like him, but it was fading, it was fading. But the picture was there for us in the Old Testament. That when we meet Christ and look into his face, we shall be like him. And John just tells us to imagine 
because now we are the children of God, but it is not yet clear what we will be. But here's what we do know, that when we see him, we will see him as he is, Revelation 1. That is not as just a Jewish carpenter, not just as a suffering servant, not just as a lamb that was slain, but you will see him in his triumphant glory. Like the rider on the white horse at the end of Revelation who comes riding with the sword out of his mouth. The one who, when he comes into your presence, you will fall down as if dead. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, this did not happen. And except for those glances, those little glimpses when he re revealed his glory. But for the most part, he, he revealed himself simply as the Jewish carpenter, the prophetic rabbi that went around teaching and proclaiming. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, the apostles, you know, three of them get a glimpse of this and they're amazed. But on that day, Christ will come in all of his glory and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we see him in that Revelation 1, triumphant glory, you will be like him transformed, conformed fully to the image of Christ. This is why you were saved. This is why you've been redeemed, that you may be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And he concludes, and everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So both are the end of chapter two and the end of this section both drive us to purification. They both drive us to pursuing righteousness. And now John is going to launch into that next week and challenge us challenge us to take the pursuit of righteousness and purity and holiness very seriously. He who sins is of the devil, John will say. He who continues in sin is of the devil. Let us be those who are in Christ, who stand with full confidence, who take the title of child of God and put every fear, every worry, every shame out of the picture because we are the children of God and let us be after the pursuits of righteousness and purity. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you today to abide and to behold. And in both, reflect upon that glory that is to come. So that in the light of that, all the problems of this earth fade away. And we can tackle them with clear eyes and vision because we know who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word Help us, we pray, to abide in Christ and to abide in the truth. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to behold the manner of love that you have bestowed upon us. What amazing grace you have given to us, Father, that you would send your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That you would send your Son to bear our judgment that we in him might stand. Fill us with confidence. We pray not only on that day, but today, for now we are the children of God. Help us to stand and to seek purity and righteousness for your name's sake. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.